Hi, I'm Sabrina and he's Marcus. And we are two of the founders of the Black Trail Runners. You can find us on Instagram at the Black Trail Runners. We're a community and campaigning group seeking to increase inclusion, participation, and representation of Black people in trail running. If something resonates with you, please let us know and share online. Also, leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected as it helps our podcast grow. Your support helps to make this podcast possible. Thank you for downloading this episode. Now, let's head to the conversation. The Checkpoint is supported by the North Face, whose fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966. To provide the best gear for their athletes and the modern-day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors, and inspire a global movement of exploration. I'm Sonny Peart, one of the co-founders of Black Trail Runners. Today I'm talking to Hugh Burton. Hugh is a runner, having twice completed the New York Marathon. He's also my cousin. The reason I'm talking to Hugh today is that he is the victim of a grave miscarriage of justice. 30 years ago, following the killing of his mother, Hugh was convicted of murder in a New York court and sentenced to life in prison. He served 20 years before being released on parole in 2009. In 2019, after decades of campaigning and with the help of the Innocence Project, his conviction was overturned and he was exonerated. For the first time since he was 16, Hugh is now a free, innocent man. Our conversation runs over two episodes. This is part one. Hugh, it's uh, a real pleasure to have you uh, to be able to talk to you today. Um, and uh, you know, I appreciate you giving up your time uh, to do this. And um, I just want to start by talking about um, your running or most recent sort of marathon running experience. So I know that you ran the New York Marathon last year. And to me, as a, uh, a long-distance runner, that's to me, that's one of my uh, bucket list races. I would love to run the New York Marathon. Uh, the most, uh, I, th- I think it is the marathon with the most people uh, entrance involved in it uh, anywhere in the world. So perhaps you could just start by telling us you know, what it was like to run that race. It was, it was surreal uh, to be able to run the race uh, with so many people uh, from around the world. You know, New York City Marathon, you're averaging 50,000 runners from, from all over the place. And looking at my whole ordeal, uh, spending 20 years in prison, watching runners and, um, you know, aspiring to 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 be a long distance runner myself um it was very surreal to be afforded the opportunity to to run the new york city marathon um after everything that i had been through yeah so um i mean i've seen that uh you ran i think it was five hours 50 minutes something like that mm-hmm. uh how was that physically for you i mean did you feel as though you just did, did yourself justice in that race? Um, well, you know, that race, that was actually my uh, second marathon. I'd ran the first one in 2016. Um, this one was a little different. I had been exonerated earlier uh, that year, uh, that January. Uh, so for me, the marathon uh, was like a victory lap um, or, around the city. So I really took my time and uh, uh, ran it. It really wasn't about competing to uh, get uh, three and a half hours or four hours or whatever. It was, you know, just to be able to run, um, to run truly free, you know. So um, it was, it, it was, it was different. So the time I didn't, I didn't really uh, factor much of the time in. 
yeah i i understand that uh, uh i couldn't find your result from the first time you had run it so do you know how fast you ran it in 2016 uh, 2016 i believe it was 445 something like that yeah Okay, that's that's a pretty respectable number, right? So, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, I've, I mean, this is clearly not about time. And so, what what you have said here, uh, and you know, some of our listeners will be picking up on this as we go along. Um, so, in two thousand and nineteen, you were running the race as a free, innocent man for the first time um, in what, nearly 30 years? Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, I want to get into, um, you know, what what led you to that point. Uh, so how, uh, you know, what your story was from 1989 onwards. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to ask you specific questions, but I know that you have told this story before. And uh, so... I'm just going to ask you, you know, what happened in 1989? Um, well, 1989, I was at the age of 16. I had returned home from school and um, I'd found my mom uh, stabbed to death. Um, my dad at the time was visiting uh, family in, in Jamaica. Uh, my mom was just starting a two-week vacation. It was the first day of the vacation. She was a registered nurse. And it was my first day back to school after the holiday break. Um, so, you know, as soon as I came and I made the discovery, I, I immediately called the police. I told them what happened, my whereabouts for that day. Um, two days after that, they called me for another interview. Uh, maybe about an hour and a half, two hours into that interview, the interview became very uh, accusatory. Uh, and they said that they knew they had evidence that led them to believe that I committed this crime um, and that, you know, it would serve me and be in my best interest if I uh, just told them what happened. Um, asking for my father, uh, wanting to talk to him, um, being denied access to him and unbeknownst to me, um, my father, along with other family members um, who had come to comfort him, were also downstairs in the precinct, and they uh, told him that I didn't want to see them. And again, as I said, told me that uh, you know I would see my father after uh, I helped them. Um, they forced me into signing a confession that I committed this crime uh, because I owed someone. Uh, money for a, a a drug deal um the story fell apart uh after they arrested and charged me the story began to fall apart after maybe a week uh when they found my mom's car because her car was stolen uh they found her car being driven by our downstairs tenant who had, who my parents had rented the house to or the apartment to uh maybe about a month and a half prior to this happening um so pretty much what they knew uh, a week and a half, two weeks after it happened, um, they doubled down on their efforts to not be uh, found out that they uh, coerced a 16-year-old child into making a confession. They doubled down on it. Um, and it literally took us 30 years and the collaborative efforts of three law clinics to uh, correct uh, something that they knew um, thirty over 30 years ago. Yeah, so... so you know, so I know, and you know, that uh, this is a, a crime of which you were innocent. <laughs> you were wrongfully convicted. You were you served a considerable length of time in prison um, before being exonerated. And I, I, so some of the some of the questions I have about this are. Uh, related to what things were like at that time. So I've heard you speak about this before, and you know I'd be interested to to hear you to, to hear you say this. So, um, I I guess what what some people would say was why would you admit to a crime that you didn't commit? What what was going through your mind that caused that? 
that caused that. You know, it's very interesting. I try to bring people back uh, to that time, uh, my age, uh, and what was going on. Uh, I had come, I had just left to go to school. Uh, my mom and I had just shared a joke about, you know, me doing better in school for this semester. And I came home less than, you know, about eight hours later and, you know, your whole world is turned upside down. And the only image that I had in my head is finding my mom inside the room, uh, um, stabbed to death. But before they brought me down to the precinct, two days, you know, after that, I had not eaten because I couldn't hold any food down. I had not slept because I could only see this one image in my head. So I slept in intervals of 10, 15 minutes for a day and a half. Um, they, when they finally said they wanted to bring me down to the precinct, it was under the auspices that it was going to be a polygraph test. Uh, when I got to the precinct, there was no polygrapher there. Um, and it, again, this whole thing of saying we know we have evidence that uh, you committed this crime. They also used the fact that I was with a, a girlfriend of mine earlier in, in the day. And uh, they said, well, we know that you were with, with her. Uh, that checked out. But uh, what you didn't know is that you're 16 and she's 13 and that's statutory rape. I had never heard the term before. And after, years later, I would find out that that would not have applied to me because of our age. So um, they told me, in essence, that if I didn't tell them that I committed this crime, not only was I going to go to jail uh, for the murder of my mom, but I was going to go to jail for statutory rape as well. And, you know, they scared me to death with, you know, the talk of what would happen to anyone uh, being brought into prison for a charge of rape. Um, but if I told them that I commit, uh, committed this crime, they would um, make sure I wouldn't go to Rikers Island for statutory rape. And my dad can come and pick me up from family court and we could put this behind us. They knew I was 16. They knew I'd never had any contact with law enforcement before. Um, they knew I'd never been questioned by law enforcement. They knew I'd never been handcuffed. They knew I came from a family that uh, didn't teach to fear law enforcement. Um, and being inside that interrogation room, the only thing that I wanted to do was get out of the room. The, the, the pressure that, you know, um, they, they, they were trying to apply. I just wanted to get out of the room and I just wanted it to stop and whatever they needed in order to make that happen. Um, they knew that they could get that out of uh, my 16 year old self. Yeah, so there, there, are, there are a lot of things going on here. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and um, sort of take one at a time here. Uh, so first let's talk about this idea that, um, you know, as far as you were concerned, the police were the good guys uh, and, you know, what they said made sense. Um, and I just like to, and I think that's related to what it was like to be a, um, an aspirational middle-class black family in New York in the 1980s. Um, you know, so, you know, you were not somebody who had experience of dealing with the police. You were somebody who had lived a, uh, you know, a, you know, uh, uh, you know, a happy life uh, without any of that kind of involvement, and uh, this was a you know a real shock to your system to be uh, sort of you know put in that position, regardless. Back, you know, the trauma of the fact that this was about your mother. Uh, so, um, so perhaps you could say a little bit about. Um, this sort of context that, as far as you're concerned, the police were uh, trying to do a good job. Uh, that's what it felt like then. Yeah, you know, they, in their in their approach, um, they 
made me feel like like this was the only way that this is going to be resolved. There is there is there is no uh, there's no one else that we're looking at. Um, and you have to you have to help us um, correct this. Uh, we know this was an accident, so we want to help you. And that began the process of me saying, oh, 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 okay, well, when they started to say, well, we're going to do it, we're going to write it like, you know, it, it, it was an accident. We know you didn't mean to commit uh, this crime. In my, in my mind, in my 16-year-old mind, um, how I was raised, you know, um, as I said, my parents never taught me that I was supposed to fear law enforcement, that law enforcement were there um, to help you. And they made me feel as if they were the only ones who were uh, in a position to help in this matter. But I needed to help them, help me. Um, And this going on for hours um, is, like I said, what what actually got me to do what they asked asked of me to do. A lot of times people look at the videotape uh, confession and they look at a clock that is sitting right to my left in the room and the clock says 10 after 3, that's a.m. But by the time the camera was turned on, I had been in that precinct from 5.30 the day before. So they don't show you everything that they did, you know, from 5.30 up until that camera came on at 10 after, almost 10 after 3 sure. the following day. Um, and I know yeah. that, because I've heard this from you uh, previously, that this is in the same year that the Central Park Five uh, were accused, charged, convicted uh, of a rape in Central Park, which you know they were wrongfully convicted of that. Um, and that uh, your case was the case immediately before that, which was on the front page of newspapers in New York during that period. Um, and I guess it speaks to uh, an idea that this was a uh, kind of systemic approach to how uh, things happened at this time. Um, that, you know, the idea you know because some people listening to this will think why would you admit to that you know if you didn't do it um but clearly this is not something that's specific to you it's happened to many other people as well uh in cases which have been very clearly uh demonstrated to be uh, miscarriages of justice so what what would you say about that how how uh, how would you sort of characterize what caused you to admit to something which you did not do well you know it's, it's i'm glad you brought up the uh the central park case uh, i'm not sure if you've seen uh the 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 show when yeah, they have, when they I see have us seen that, so. um, many people watching this will have seen that, okay so. so yeah so you know i want everyone you know if they did see it to go back to the interrogation um, scenes. Um, you had so many different elements involved. Um, they really had those kids thinking that they were helping the police officers help them. And one of the, with one of the gentlemen, um, his father pressured him into uh, uh, confessing to it because. A lot of this was really the temperament of the time. You were looking at 1989 in New York City. Uh, That year alone, um, I think you had over 2,000 murders. Um, You had so much going on. Um, The crack epidemic was at its height. There was a need to um, criminalize or, or, or demonize young black men in this city. Um, evidence of it is, like I said, or like you mentioned, my case, I was arrested on January 6th. April 19th is when 
that happened in Central Park. And there were other cases that didn't make news. They weren't sensationalized. But the effects uh, were still the same. Um, in order to understand that, it, it was the temperament of the time. And they would like many people to believe that most young black men uh, were just out in the street, just carrying on with no sense of self or, or anything. But as you it, to reference when they see us again, uh, young Corey Wise was only going down there to sit and keep yeah, his I mean, friends. Yeah, I mean that's the most incredible thing about that. Yeah, you're a witness, and you get ending up convicted. Uh, you with the worst. You do the longest amount of time and have the worst ordeal of the five. You understand? What I mean, so an answer to an answer to the question. Um, you know. What uh, what goes on? What is in, what is the state of mind? These they would like for you to believe that many of us were just hardened kids or hardened young men, but many of us were frightened children who would have said or did anything that they told us to do. Perhaps you could tell us something about you know who was uh, sort of aware of what had happened to you and how they supported you and what effect that had on your relationships with other people? Mm, great question. Um, you know, when this happened, it was sensationalized. It was um, on every channel that you could turn, um, every major newspaper in the city, uh, as far as Florida. Um, word of it even, uh, I believe the word of it even went across the pond to some family. Um, being that <laughs> us being here in, in, in America, I think a lot of us, we, um, had a fear, uh, of, of, about us when it came to certain people and whatever they said uh, sometimes, you know, we accept it as truth and we don't try to find find out what really happened. Um, just like now, 30 years removed, it's hard for people to understand how someone can admit to something they didn't do. Um, imagine 30 years ago. Um, but as things uh, began to unfold, people started to see, wait a minute, something is, um, something's off. We need to look into this. Um, so I did have um, I did have family members who didn't, you know, did inquire and and, and look about uh, my well being. But you know, for me, the, the the work and sacrifice that my dad did it's it's kind of hard to look at anyone else um, as being there for me when you look at what he did and the sacrifices he made right up until the end. So, so tell us a little bit more about your dad. I mean, I know that uh, unfortunately he passed away before you were exonerated. Uh, yeah. What yeah. what kind of sacrifices? What kind of things does he do? Uh, how did he demonstrate his belief in your innocence while he was alive? Well, first, um, all of his life savings, everything that he worked for uh, since being in the country uh, went towards my defense. Um, every visit room that I'd ever been in, every courtroom that I'd ever been there, been in, he was there um, sitting right there with the silent nod of, I'm here and you have my support. Um, my attorney, attorney fees, my legal fees, he, he dealt with, he made sure throughout the whole ordeal, if I was way upstate in New York, that he would find a way to drive there. Bad eyesight and everything in the middle of the winter. Um, he sacrificed He sacrificed everything um, right up until the end. Um, I remember they brought him up in 2003. Um, I was still serving. He had sold the house that we had in the Bronx in 2000 and I went, moved back home. I thought it was a great idea, you know, to be around uh, family, warm, warm weather, you know, um, I thought it would add to quality of life. 
Um, three short years later, they had to bring him up uh, because his health was, it, it was beginning to fail uh, bad. And um, they made sure that he did stop up by the facility that I was in at the time um, to see me. Thankfully, I was in a facility that wasn't too far from the city. Um, but when I saw him and I talked to him, he had gotten much older in the three years. But his memory, his memory wasn't there. So the, you know, what was the early onset of Alzheimer's, uh, it seemed to really pick up now. And it's like he had trouble remembering who I was, you know. So um, you look, you're sitting across from someone who you've been in the trenches with fighting for 13 years at the time. And they have very little memory of who you are, you know. So, again, this is what I mean by the ultimate sacrifices that um, my father made for him towards this whole ordeal, you know. Yeah, I can. Well, I, I say I can understand that as a father, but I, you know, I haven't been in that position. So I, I'm not sure I really can understand that. But I, 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 I see what you're saying. Um, now, one thing that strikes me about you um so i've you know i've heard you talk about these things before um and what strikes me is your serenity um i kind of imagine that if i was in your position i would just be so angry uh and you don't give the impression of being angry in that way uh, so I just wanted to kind of explore, you know, is that true? Is that, you know, am I just misinterpreting you or uh, are you hiding that? Um, or, you know, and if you're not, then what what has enabled you to have this kind of serenity? Um, well, an answer, an answer to the first part of the question. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in answer to the first part of um, the question, as far as anger, um, no, I'm very, um, I'm very, very angry. Um, but as I always say, when I, when I speak to different audiences and they ask, you know, why aren't you just, you know, boiling over with, with anger? And I always tell them that anger is dual um, and it's like fire and, Fire can be used to heat your home or it can be used to burn your home to the ground. Um, it's how you take it and how you harness it and, 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 and apply it. Um, if it's allowed to run wild, it, yeah, it will burn your house down. If anger is uncontrolled, no one wins. Um, if I'm just angry, angry, screaming at the top of my lungs and expressing my anger that way, then no one is hearing what happened to Kizzy. No one's hearing what happened to Keziah Burton. They just see an angry man. No, I have to exercise serenity so I can make sure that the world hears me clear about what they did to me, the lack of respect that they showed my mother, and the sacrifices, and ultimate, you know, uh, sacrifice that my father made when it didn't have to be. I can't express that screaming Sometimes if you're screaming, no one can hear. If you speak a little softer, people will hear every word that you have to say. So, yeah, I'm very angry. I'm very angry. Um, but, you know, prison, whereas it takes so many things from you, you realize that there are a lot of things that are outside of your control. They make sure that they reinforce that to you every day. That everything here is out of your control. We control your life. Um, inside that, you know, a lot of people would get so frustrated with the whole mindset of prison. And I used to have my father tell me on the phone when he would hear me frustrated. He would say to me, you know, um, make sure you don't let that place make you become dark hearted. And I never understood what he meant by it. You know, he was saying it from when I was in my early 20s and I didn't understand it. I thought, well, maybe he's just sitting down having, you know, his little drink for the evening or whatever. But as years went on, I started to understand what he meant. Um, 
sometimes people allow themselves to become so um, dark inside that um, even after they're released, um, they're not productive, even when they want to be. So he would always say, don't let that place control you and, and change who you are. The essence of who you are is a decent person. Don't let the circumstances dictate that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, I mean, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. And there, is, there are so many questions that I want to ask. And I, I kind of apologize that I'm going to kind of throw questions at you, uh, which might feel uh, a little bit random. In this, so, so I mean, I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of love the fact that you are still raging underneath this, uh, what appears to be a kind of serene uh, surface. Um, so I'm, so one thing I'd like to know is what. <sighs> Now, if you could go back to that time, to 1989, what would change? Or, or another way of putting this, if if somebody, if a young, you know, a teenager today is being accused of something which they do not, you know, which they did not do, what would your advice be to them? What would you say to them? Um, do not... Do not talk to them by yourself. Do not talk to them by yourself. Um, make sure that you have an adult present. Um, and even before any type of things like that happen to in one's life, happen to you in your life, I would suggest that um, you learn basics of law, what your rights are. Many of us in the neighborhood in which we come from, especially in New York, at the time in which I was a kid, none of us knew our basic rights, the basic laws, and what they were supposed to do and, you know, what protected us. We had no clue, you know, and um, many of us, we'll find ourselves sitting in prison five, ten years and then realize some of the injustices that have been done to us or some of the, how the law has been perverted to get us here. So in answer to that, I would tell, I would tell them, you know, no, don't talk to them by yourself. You tell them you want your guardian here. Um, you tell them you want an attorney. Yeah, I, I, I would say that. And they try to say, well, if you're innocent, well, you know, you don't need an attorney to help with that. You need an attorney. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, that is really interesting. And, and so I, I was watching a video uh, of you and uh, one of the attorneys, I think, from the Innocence Project. I could have, I could be wrong, but um, and a phrase that she used struck me very hard, and she said that innocence puts people at risk in that because you believe know that you're innocent you think that whatever i do you know won't change that that you know in some way that protects me from you know the consequences of saying something you know bad or whatever um and i just wonder is you know was you know, what was the process going through your mind at that time? Uh, you know, this is something you didn't do and you were being encouraged to say that you did do it. Um, and did, you know, was part of that thinking, well, I didn't do it. So no matter what I say, things have got to be okay, right? Right. Um, so... So I guess, so let me make sure I'm I'm clear in, in, in what you're asking. As you're asking in terms of um the 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 confessing um uh just making this statement, um you're saying what was going through my mind as I'm making the statement? Yeah, I I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um. Remember, they're telling me that as we leave here, you do this. When we leave here, you know. 
your dad is going to, we're going to make sure your dad is at family court and he's going to come pick you up and you're going to go home. Um, you know, and the other thing is, the, the other alternative is, if you don't do this with us, you're not going to see your dad and you're going to go to Rikers Island with not one, but two charges. Um, my mindset was, well, I know I didn't commit this crime. If this is the only way I can get out, out of this room and my dad is going to come meet me at the family court, I'm going to explain to him, daddy, they made me say that to get out of the room. I, I didn't want to be in there no more. And I didn't know how to say, I didn't want to be in there. I want to go home. I'm tired. I, you know what I mean? I, I didn't know how to say that. And, you know, I, in my mind, in my 16-year-old naive mind, I'm thinking when I get down to the family court, I'm going to explain this, as I said to my dad. And, you know, daddy, they made me say those things. Um, I realized that I had been lied to when we walked out of the precinct and all of the newspaper outlets were there taking pictures and screaming at me and asking questions. and. Then I was put into the back of the police car and they turned on the radio and one of the news programs that comes on, I call it 1010 Wins, this news radio program, the same story that they had me write and memorize, the same story. I can hear the man uh, talking about as I'm on my way and uh, what I think is family court, but I'm on my way to be a, a, a book. Sure. You know, so, uh, yeah. Now, this this is a difficult question for me to ask, um, but I'm going to sort of, I'm going to ask it anyway because um, I'm going to claim we're related so I can ask difficult questions. But um, but people, people will do that anyway. Um, so one of the things that strikes me about your case, which um, – you know, it's clearly a miscarriage of justice, is that it's it's still quite difficult for people looking at it to remove any sense that you might be guilty. And I, I you know, I, I don't want to misrepresent this here. What, what I'm saying is that when someone's been convicted of a crime, uh-huh our sort of natural instinct is to believe that's true. And then when it's contradicted, we, okay, we'll accept the evidence that it's contradicted. But it's still really difficult to separate the person from the crime. And, you know, and, and, you know, and I see this in a kind of extreme way. It's in that, you know, I've heard you tell me about the evidence involved in this crime and there's no question that you're innocent and there's no question that there was corruption and deceit involved in your conviction. And yet, and, 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 you know, and you're my cousin and I'm like, yeah, I'm on your side. You know, I get this. Uh, And yet, Every time I hear about this, I can't help thinking about you and thinking about the crime and putting these two things together. And that kind of makes me feel, you know, that makes me feel bad and you know, not in any way, you know, sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, equivalent to how bad this has been for you. But I, I'm, I'm just kind of sort of asking the question, you know, do you feel as though it's almost impossible for you to escape this, even though you've been exonerated, you're innocent, uh, you're out there in the world? Um, you know, to what degree is this still hanging over you? Knowing that, okay, all of the evidence is out now. The things that we've been talking about for the last 30 years, it's public knowledge. Um, this is what they did. Um, and here is full detail. Uh, you know. I know that there may be people that may still, as you said, may want to have that inkling of thing where they still believe it. To that, I say this. Those are usually um, people who want to 
You want it to be true because you accepted it as truth for so long. People have accepted it for truth for so long. They want it to be true. And the fact that there has been an exoneration and, and, and a reevaluating of the facts in the case, there is a personal shame with people that they believe that, um, that there were people that I knew who, you know, they believed that certainly everybody wasn't riding for me, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, so there were people who believed that. So when innocence was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, there was shame. Um, and when I asked myself about it after my exoneration, I had to stop. Because I'm saying, why am I worrying about their shame like I'm carrying it? Shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. You know, um, and if you and if people still believe that after looking at everything that's been laid out, um, I don't I don't I really don't know what to say uh, for that. You know, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, the, the, there's lots of complexity here. And, um, you know, I, I know from my own personal experience that I'm having some really sort of strong emotions about this. So you and I, we've, we've never met in person. Um, I've, I've seen you on uh, Zoom calls. We've communicated online um, until this year. I didn't, you know, I knew nothing about you. I didn't know who you were and you didn't know who I was. Um, and yet our kind of paths had almost kind of crossed in that way. Um, but because of the sort of uh, sort of social pressures involved in this, I'd never known about your case. Um, so, you know, our family something that was talked about um and you know you you know this much better than i do that uh you know people kind of you know just walked away and ignored it uh, and didn't want to be associated with it um and you know i you know i would claim that you know i was only 18 at the time or 21 at the time so you know why would i know about this but you know that that that's a whole other issue um so um so what i'd like to say or what I'd like to ask you is from where you are now which is you know has all of this past behind you what does what what does justice look like for you now you know, what what is a good situation from where we are now uh, a good situation. What does justice look for, like for me now? Um, I've been exonerated two thousand two thousand nineteen. That means that no one has been properly held responsible for my mom's murder. Um, that means that we have proven that the police officers and the prosecution um, had a game going on and. I was going to be the one that was going to be the loser in the end. They have not been held responsible for what they knew. The things that the prosecutor hid and kept hidden from the defense would not, there would have been no 30-year ordeal. There would not have been a two-year ordeal. There would have been no trial had that evidence been turned over. The officers in the case afforded my mother a 48-hour investigation at the at which at the end of, they say, you know what, her only child uh, is the one that we deem to be responsible for this. Uh, even after they caught the uh, tenant in my mom's car, instead of saying, okay, we, re we really need to assess this, uh, check this out, they doubled down on it. And they conspired with him to help them cover up their mistake. No one has been held responsible. The only person that has uh, seen any type of injustice in this instance has been me. So I, I, um, I just want to. So what does I justice just, look like? Yes. I, I just want to ask you about this. So, 
uh, and I, I really don't know the answer to this question, which okay. is, why do you think, you know, why did those police officers, why did the district attorney insist on pursuing you as the perpetrator of this crime when they knew that you weren't the perpetrator of this crime? I mean, what, what was going through I, I, I really don't understand their motivation. Great question. Um, a couple of months prior, uh, a couple of months prior to um, this happening to me, those same officers uh, did the same dog and pony show with two other teenagers. And they got them to confess to something that they didn't do. Um, it was found out. And that case didn't last as long as, you know, my 30-year ordeal. Um, thankfully, they didn't have to, you know, do all that before the truth was uh, discovered. But these officers did not want that to come to light again, that they were at it yet again. So whatever they needed to do, because these were seasoned detectives. Seasoned detectives with 10, 15 years on the job can look at a 16-year-old and tell what that child is or is not into. Um, so before they decided that, okay, well, we have to admit to the mistake that we made because they rushed to call the media. They did that. They said, we cannot um, let, let it be known what we did. So they conspired with the murderer to cover up a murder. Um, the district attorney in the case had evidence that, that she knew, um, the tenants lied about their whereabouts that day, never turned it over. She also had, um, the written statement from my teacher that morning stating that Hugh Burton was here in class. He could not have possibly been there. You made sure that you hid that along with a lot of other Brady material. Um, again, no one's been held accountable. So for me, you know, to reiterate, that's what justice looks like. So, so my next question, I guess, is what, what can people do? Uh, so anyone listening to this, what can they do to help you um, get that justice? They have, uh, in, in, in the States, they have immunity for prosecutors and law enforcement. And this immunity bars them from prosecution, from losing their jobs, from going to prison. Um, that has to change. Because if that does not change, we will still have these same conversations 10, 15, 20 years from now because law, uh, law enforcement and prosecutors will believe that it doesn't matter. If they find out that I did something, I still padded my uh, uh, resume with convictions. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to lose any finances. My family will be okay. That has to change. The way in which that changes is public outcry from people. You want them held accountable. 31 years ago, it was me. Tomorrow, it can be your nephew, your son, your grandson, your daughter going through the same thing. They don't care. Um, and it would be the wrong time at that time to say, okay, well, we have to do something. They're going to continue to keep doing what they did to me. It's still happening as we speak. There, there's evidence being hidden, shuffled, lost, that would free people. As you and I sit here and speak now, it has to change. It has to change. Yeah, so I, I, I know that um, from conversations we've had before that... Uh, the district attorney in this case uh, kept 
two separate files, one which kept uh, or had information that uh, was uh, suggested that you were guilty, uh, and then another one which uh, had information which proved that you were not guilty. Um, and they kept the, that second file uh, secret from anybody else. Um, and that file was only discovered by accident, as far as as far as I'm aware, that the Innocent Project asked for uh, some information, and that was sent to them you know, by mistake by the Bronx uh, District Attorney's Office. Um, and what I've also heard from you is that um, the the District Attorney in that case is now a judge in Queens, in New York, um, which, you know, speaks to uh, the fact that uh, this is something that is not just systemic, uh, but is endemic and, you know, continues to be the case that people uh, are have been uh, prosecuting uh, individuals uh, on the basis of well, I'll come back to this. So, so there have been false false convictions. There have been unsafe convictions, and the people who have been involved in uh, sort of creating those convictions uh, knowingly um, are still part of the criminal justice system and not just still part of it, but are increasingly influential parts of the criminal justice system. So, so I guess my question to you then is, um, you know, what to you, what, what is the end game here? You know, I, you know, I, I could, you know, as, as your cousin, as another person of color, as somebody who uh, supports uh, equity and justice uh, within our society, I, you know, absolutely would like to see your case uh, reviewed and, you know, not just overturned, but the, as you say, the people who are actually involved in uh, sort of perpetrating this being. Uh, brought to account so you know what what can we do to actually make that happen i mean is is this something that is even possible i mean i that sounds a little bit yeah. sort of defeatist yeah no 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 and i'll share this um so the tenant that lived downstairs um he had a, I, I guess, what they would call a common law wife. Um, they, we learned they weren't married. Um, she was a little older than he was. Um, and they, they both lived there together. Um, when they found him in the car, they called her to come down to the precinct because they knew they had a problem. When they checked out whether or not she, because, you know, they, they check out everything you say when you give your initial statement. She gave a statement saying that, you know, um, her husband left for work um, and she was leaving out for work and she jumped, she was jumping in a cab and the lady from upstairs um, called to her out the window and she told her she was running late for work and she would talk to her when she got back from work. That was the woman from downstairs original statement the prosecutor in the case who was now a judge went and they checked out you know this woman's work history comes to find out she was not at work that day at all they called her into the precinct um to help get this story together um my father also told me this is his account, not mine. That while having just a curious nature, he's the landlord. He says, These people, I feel these people had something to do with it. And he says, He goes down to the apartment and sees my mom's stuff 
inside the apartment. He closes it, calls the police. The police come, they threaten to lock him up for going into the apartment. As they're having this exchange in front of the downstairs apartment, that same woman that I was just talking about comes in, according to my father, sweeps off all of the stuff off the top of the table that had my mom's things on it. And my father is there crying, saying, please, my wife's things are in that bag. Do not let her leave. That was the last time my father said he saw her. That's not my account. That was his. I was in jail at the time that this happened. I'm saying all that to say he was not alone in committing this crime. There was help. There was help. And and I think you've heard, I think I've heard you say that that woman is still living in New York and. In, that in, woman you know, still close, lives close in the to same, where you yourself live, right? That woman still lives in New York, in the Bronx. Um, and, you know, if we want to do something, we have to hold that woman responsible for what she knows. And she is the linchpin to telling us everything that those officers did inside that interrogation room with the real murder in this case and what part she played in that. Yeah. Um, so I want to be, um, I want to hone in on a particular thing here. So I know that uh, you've, you've told me before that uh, you're being offered compensation um i'm i'm guessing from uh the bronx uh county or whatever however that works in america i don't understand that but um so compensation for the fact that you've been in prison wrongfully for many years um and you've told me that you know that's not your concern what you're interested in is getting accountability and justice for uh you know what's happened to you and the people involved in that should uh you know have you know accountability for what they've done so i guess what i'm asking mm-hmm. is you know what does that accountability look like what 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 does justice look like for you um, in short, the judge needs to be off the bench. Um, she needs to, um, be in handcuffs, man. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's the least end of it, to be in handcuffs. The officers, they, as a result of what they had been doing to, to, to young black men for years, they ended up as being uh, uh, investigators in the Bronx DA's office. How does that work? How are you an investigator in the Bronx DA's office after having a history of not just doing this to me, but to others that we know of? I don't know about the ones I don't know. I'm just saying the ones I do know. And you're offered an increasing position. You're an investigator in the Bronx DA's office. The prosecutor in my case goes on to become a judge. Everybody is rewarded. No, you all have to come on. No, you all have to come down. You all have to come on down, man. You have to face what you did, what you knew. I wasn't a grown man who was a giving problem to, to, to people in the street that you needed to get off of the street by any means. I was a 16-year-old kid that came home to find his mother murdered and needed the system to help him find out who murdered his mother, not cart him off to prison 48 hours later. No. Knowing that that wasn't true but because you wanted to pad your record with cleaning the trash up in the streets. Did that. So no, that's what it looks like for me. You have to come down, you have to. You have to go through some of the things I went through. Thank you for joining us at The Checkpoint. 
If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and share online. Also, please remember to leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected, as it really helps our podcast to grow. Your support helps make this podcast possible. Remember, if you have any questions, get in touch with us via our Instagram page at Black Trail Runners, or if you want to join our community, please search Facebook for Black Trail Runners and connect with us.